Daily Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 75, Carl's first flight down to Colombia and South America, and a test flight and a detailed explanation of the P-2006 Technum aircraft by Eric Crump. And, of course, Picks of the Week, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to Stuck Mike Avcast. This is episode 75, and I'm your host, Carl Valeri. And we, I am joined by some of my favorite co-hosts. Unfortunately, we're missing uh, Victoria Newell. She, uh, Victoria Zyko, actually, she had to take the night off. She's very busy. Uh, this is our 75th episode, and that is the, uh, well, mm-hmm. the silver. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Very excited, and we're excited to talk about this topic tonight. And I think it's someone said it's the silver, the gold, the diamond. I'm not sure. I'm just going to call it the uh, the bent propeller episode. Uh, we'll we'll talk. You know, <laughs> this this will be our bent propeller or our wooden propeller uh, anniversary, either one. Uh, but I'm I'm. This has been just so much fun. This ride that we've had through the uh, different episodes and and having different hosts on, and and I, I truly think that. You know, I've learned a lot from the other folks on the show, and I've I've also had a lot of fun, and I really appreciate everybody that's that's here, that's our co-host. And mentioning our co-host, uh, we have with us today from, uh, well, Sean Moody. Where are you coming from today? Oh, good old home in central Kentucky, where it's hot, sticky, and humid. Typical summer. <laughs> <laughs> and hot, sticky, and humid, I think, is actually in the New England states, and that's where uh, we hear Rick Felty. Rick, welcome. Yes, hello. Hot, sticky, and humid was uh, one of my bands in high school. No, really? No, I'm wow. just kidding. <laughs> that's just something I, I actually you hear me say that a million times. Uh, sorry, bad joke. No, but yeah, it's uh, okay. it's muggy, but it's better. There was a front that went through, so yay for let's hear it for fronts. Awesome, awesome, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I ran out of numbers on my thermometer, so I know it's over a hundred here in uh, in Florida and the uh, wow. Southwest here. And but I think it's actually warmer where uh, we have Eric Crump coming from, and that's uh, in uh, in Central Florida. Hey, Eric, how you I doing? Am, I'm doing great. I'm in true Central Florida, and you guys have a breeze over there on the coast, Carl. But over here, it's just hot, sticky, and humid. I'll I'll second that emotion. Um, but uh, yeah, it's actually. Now that it's officially summer, when when the seasons are changing, it rains every day, and it kind of keeps the temperature a little little less awful. But um, you know, now it's now it's officially summer, and so the the rain is starting to slow down a little bit. So it's just oppressively miserable outside. <laughs> Let's do the pre-flight. Well, uh, you know, it, it's warm everywhere, and uh, especially here in North America, and uh, I actually got to go down to uh, South America, talk a little bit about that, but uh, we're really excited to be here today, and, uh, you know, I just want to, a quick shout out to the folks listening, we really appreciate you all, and, and thanks for all the comments you've you sent us and the questions, we're trying to get to all those questions, we won't be able to get to any this episode, uh, but we do, just keep coming, you bringing them in, and, and we'll keep answering them, anything that's technical. Uh, by the way, a quick shout out, talking about uh, summer flying. A little product that I put together. It's at uh, Aviation Careers Podcast. It's called Summer Flying, and uh, you can watch the first uh, portion of that video for free. But it talks about navigating around Florida and in the North America, uh, just in general, uh, and dealing with all the different thunderstorms, etc. Uh, also, we have a couple other shout-outs before we get started, but a, but a quick mention of uh, Aviation Universe, who's our sponsor of this episode and many episodes. And, it, and if you like the show, just please go out to the uh, uh, go out to uh, Stuck Mike Avcast and look in the right column there and uh, click on some of our sponsors, especially uh, AviationUniverse.us. Uh, they have some awesome products and really doing some innovative things. Uh, but uh, we do have a couple shout-outs. I know, Rick Felty, you had a couple you wanted to mention. Yeah, they're they're actually it's it's cool. It's a couple of friends of mine, young friends of mine who've been uh, moving along the pilot path, and I wanted to give them a shout out because they've each had some uh, major achievements since we last recorded. Um, I think Andrew Blanchard, you've heard me talk about him before. He's the young man who's at Purdue, studying aviation there, and he um, 
besides passing lots of other lots of levels and I don't know what they all are anymore. But most recently, he became a CFI. So way to awesome. go, Andrew. That's, Great job. Yeah, yeah, he's um he's just moving on at a nice clip. So it's very exciting. We're going to hopefully fly together this summer. Uh, so I can learn some things. Um, and uh, Sam DeBartolo, I don't know if um, oh, we've talked about Sam. You remember Sam? Oh, yeah. He's now passed because uh, he was he started very young and he's now getting to the point where he can continue to move through the process. So I, I'm pretty sure I saw online and social media that he passed his written for his private. And uh, I know he's done at least I think he did his long cross country. So he's probably just my guess is he's at this point um, uh, practicing for the uh, for the. Uh, you know the flying portion right. of, the, of the so um, you know these two guys uh, I met them both when they were when they were just kids in high school and or younger than that even in Sam's case and uh, they're just a good example of people who love it and are, are doing it as young men and uh, moving on so it's very exciting so congratulations to Andrew and Sam to uh, fans of the show yeah terrific and, then, and and Sam I know you've asked me a couple times if if I'm flying you down to Aruba he flies the same airline that I that I work for and uh-huh. someday I'm hoping that I'll get Sam up into the cockpit and I, oh, I promised I would do that sometime and that just would be take great. a pe- peek around and anytime <laughs> up in that in that area so I'm cool. very you know that uh, Sam's a neat 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 person and and uh, I love all the videos that he puts on there and the pictures just someone who's truly yeah. truly passionate about flight and uh, that's that's exciting to see. Yeah. Uh, so thanks thanks for those shout outs. Any other shout outs from anybody else as far as any achievements, etc. Um, I just and if you have a shout out by the way, and you want to recognize someone, just email us over at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Go to the contact page. Say someone finished their rating. Let us know about it. I mean that's exciting. That truly is exciting. And you know we we love to talk about learning to fly. And you know we, we love all of us are about living to fly and and loving to fly. And that's those are the things that are so exciting for us to hear about. So it keeps us really excited and really juiced up for this this podcast. Now entering cruise flight. Well, a couple things have happened actually since I've uh, you know we talk about first you know Sam got to to you know pass his written exam and and you know I've been flying for about ten thousand hours now and I still get firsts. Imagine that you know it's uh, I actually got to fly to Medellin or Medellin as they say down in Colombia. So it's my first flight into Colombia. And uh, that was quite exciting, uh, going in, into the uh, Andes Mountains, you know, in the top of the Andes. Airport's wow. way up there, about 7,000 feet. And uh, we're not going to talk about it this episode, but here's a little primer for those folks that are working on their instrument rating or thinking about it. Think about this. You know, you have to do a procedure turn sometimes at the outer marker, but there's also times that you shouldn't do the procedure turn. And... The reason being is you can get yourself in trouble, maybe bump into something. So take a look at your charts, and maybe before the next episode, I'll, I'll come up with something, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit in the next episode. Why, why shouldn't you do a procedure turn? Uh, and even if it's depicted, why, when shouldn't you, and, and why shouldn't you on an arrival and an approach procedure into an airport? Uh, think about that a little bit, uh, and I'm not. I'm giving. You know, I'm trying to just give the. You know, I'm being a little bit elusive here. So think about when you really, really wouldn't want to do a procedure turn. As a matter of fact, think about when the procedure turn would actually be dangerous. And so uh, it's kind of odd to, to say that, but uh, but that that's my hints. And uh, look into that for the next episode. I know Eric Crump is is chomping at the bit to ask answer that <laughs> that question. Down, Eric. Down. No. 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 <laughs> I'm, I've restrained myself. I'm duct taped to the chair. I, I I won't do it. Promise. Well, you know, this episode. Uh, the one thing I'm I'm excited about with this episode is is I talked to Eric a couple days ago, and Eric just couldn't. I could tell when he was talking to me in his car, he could barely stay in his seat. He was so excited about an airplane that he was flying. And, and honestly, I'm incredibly excited about this. And I'll tell you why. Just a little history. It's one of the planes that I've always wanted to fly. It's a, called a Partnavia. But this actually isn't a Partnavia. It's the similar company. But it, it's, a, it's a different type of product. It it's uh, uses different engines. It's lighter, but it has the same mission. A Partnavia is, is an interesting aircraft. It has a high wing and has a lot of visibility. And it's a really cool old airplane that they've been using for, you know, patrol for photography a lot of friends that do photography but but they've come up with a new product and it's a company that's called Technum and and it's called the P2006 and uh, it's actually a really neat twin engine Rotax engine aircraft that 
I am like super jealous that Eric Crump has gotten to, to fly. As a matter of fact, you did invite me to go up and get it. So I, if part of it's my fault. I couldn't make it there. But uh, but that is such a neat plane. As a matter of fact, I just read about it in Air International. Uh, it's called the Partnavia P2006. I've seen it at Sun and Fun. I got to, to actually look inside it. What a neat airplane, isn't it, Eric? It's it's really neat to look at, and then you fly it, and then you never want to fly anything ever again other other than that. Um <laughs> It's uh, it's really addictive, um, and uh, it, it's it's great because I I now have one around all the time. Um, the Technum P two thousand six T is a relatively new airplane in terms of you know how long it's actually been in production. Just a little over two years now, um, and uh, um, uh, people may be familiar with Technum as a light sport aircraft manufacturer which they are a huge light sport aircraft manufacturer. Most people don't realize that Technum has been in business as a manufacturing company since the 40s. Wow, Technum's really? Technum has been around forever. Um, they're based in Italy, build outstanding aircraft, um, and the Technum uh, 2006T um, is one of the first fully certified aircraft that they've brought over to the United States. So unlike the light sports, which have their own certification requirements, the 2006T is a Part 23 certified airplane, just like anything else you want to uh, buy and fly uh, in the United States. So um, the neat, well, I can't say the neat thing about it. One of the things about this airplane is that it is a high wing twin, which you don't see very many of, and that it's it's powered by two Rotax engines. Um, and so each one of those engines generates 100 horsepower, which you think, well, that's kind of under underpowered uh, would be your first uh, thought. But when you look at the you know thrust to weight ratio of the Rotax engine, the engine itself is only a little over a hundred pounds. Um, so uh, wow. for its weight, it generates a ton of power. Um, the airplane uh, uh, max gross weight on the airplane is somewhere depending on um, uh, you can it can be certified up to twenty seven hundred pounds max gross weight, um, which at twenty seven hundred pounds, it's two normal sized people, full tanks, and somebody in the back seat. Um, extremely roomy on the inside, um, and uh, just just a blast to fly. Um, it's really sporty, really light on the controls, um, and it just flies like you would expect an airplane to fly. It, it, there are no surprises. It does exactly what you think it's going to do, um, and man, it just. And it, when you see the pictures of it, you'll note that unlike most of your traditional light twins, it has a really long nose on it. Um, and because of that, it—I uh, I don't know how many people have been lucky enough to to go to Disney World back when you could ride in the front of the monorail. You could actually sit in the cockpit. <laughs> uh, they don't let you do that anymore. But back in the olden days, um, when the monorails were still new, <laughs> you could you could sit up in the the cockpit and see where you're going. And that's exactly what it looks like in the front of the Technum Twin. It feels like you've got this big slanting uh, thing in front of you, and it, the visibility is insane. Um, and the ride is just really cool. Now, Eric, why why were you flying one of these? I mean, wh- what are you doing with this airplane? So this airplane is actually on the line um, in uh, in my collegiate aviation program. So this is the airplane we're doing uh, twin engine training in, um, and which is really neat because uh, because it's Rotax powered, it burns car gas. <laughs> oh, wow. So. Um, in a in a light cruise setting, um, the airplane burns about eight gallons an hour total <laughs> between both engines. Um, so it's incredibly cost effective to operate, um, and uh, you know it actually for being a brand new production airplane, you can operate this airplane cheaper than you can op- operate a worn out Piper Seminole or you know equivalent Duchess or what we traditionally think think of as your traditional light twins for training. This one's brand new, and it operates a little bit cheaper. Well, but I'm going to assume, though, it's going to cost some money to actually uh, buy one of these. You know, it's really nuts. When I looked at what they were asking for for a, for a twin-engine airplane, uh, with, the, uh, with the glass cockpit, the, it's the Garmin G950, which is essentially what everybody knows as the G1000, just without the engine instruments and the integrated autopilot. Um, with the glass panel, I think this thing comes in right at or around six hundred thousand dollars. Wow, that's um, pretty good. Well, but when you think about it, for for a multi-engine airplane, um, you know those that's along the lines of a you know a, a new Bonanza, for example. So 
um, you know, it, it, it depends on what you want to do with it. Um, and, and anybody who's flown it or knows anything about it, um, it's slow. It's not, you know, your quick, fast, super speedy twin, but it wasn't really built for speed. You know, it was built to be a, um, you know, a cross-country flying airplane or to be used for pilot training. And, um, and it's very good. It's very good at that. It's an extremely stable airplane. When you're doing, uh, you know, practicing engine failures in the airplane, um, it's one of the things that new multi-engine students just freak out about. Um, at first, they're really excited. And then when their foot starts shaking because they haven't been using that much foot ever in their training, then um, they're starting to think maybe this wasn't such a great idea. Um, but in the Technum, because the, the center line of the engine is so close to the longitudinal axis of the airplane, it's just it's not so bad, really. It's not bad to fly a single engine. Now, this this aircraft you said has a critical engine. Which, and, and I'll have to have to confess here. I know we talked about the critical engine, and I and, and I had said that I thought it was the right engine because for some ungodly reason I was thinking in my head a Russian engine, and uh, it's the, the Rotax. Well, R so. Rotax is close enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. But, but but you did you did correct me there. This is a it's a it's a traditional or from an American's per- perspective a more traditional type of engine. So our, you do have a critical engine for training, and mm-hmm. uh, you said it's pretty docile. Would you say compare it to say a Duchess for those or a Seminole for those people that have been yeah, training? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to compare it to those because you've got counter rotating engines, counter rotating propellers. So you really it doesn't matter which one you fail; they're both the same. Right. Um, in in the Technum Twin, when you fail the left engine, you can tell. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a much more exaggerated experience than failing the, than failing the right engine. Um, and you know, I personally think that's a good idea. The first time you have a critical engine failure, you don't want that to be in a Baron or a King Air, because it's going to get your attention really quick. Um, and you know, to do it in an airplane that is um, less less of a performer in the sense that it's not as much horsepower. Um, the center line of the engine is really close to the center line of the airplane. So you get the experience of operating in a critical engine failure situation without all the really adverse, scary, risky effects of doing it in a bigger airplane with 300 or more horsepower sitting way out on the engine, way out on the wing, I mean. So, Eric, just let's back up there for a second on that term. You just said critical engine. Uh, for those people that are new to twins, what, what is a critical engine? So the critical engine concept just means it's, it's the one that's going to give you the most or the worst effect if it should fail. So if you think about the way a typical propeller turns, if you're sitting in the cockpit and the propeller's in front of you, most traditional uh, aircraft engines, the propellers will spin to the right. Okay, so because of that, the, and not to get too technical in aerodynamics here, um, the downward moving propeller blade um, has the the biggest uh, it has the biggest pull. That's your your um, your P factor, right? So um, and then the the upward moving propeller blade doesn't have as much thrust essentially. So when you figure if you're looking you're sitting in the cockpit of an airplane, you have an engine out to your left. Well, if the engine is or the propeller is turning to the right, um, it's going to tell you then that the what basically what you're dealing with here is that the engine the the propeller blade furthest from the center line of the engine is going to give you the most adverse effect. So on the right side, your downward moving propeller blade is further away from the center line of the airplane, which means it's going to produce more adverse yaw should the left engine die. That's a really crude <laughs> overview of critical no, engine. That was great. No, that was that, good. Yeah. yeah. It's tough without a picture. I'm sorry. I'm a picture kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, but you know, Rick, Rick, you understood that, right? That that was an awesome explanation. I exactly. Think. I'm I'm the I'm the guy who should go. Oh, cool. Or <laughs> I'm not following. <laughs> but no, I could totally picture it. Yeah, you know, that made sense before you even got to the right engine was the one. I was like, I I know where he's going, and that's very interesting. And you know, not having ever flown twins, I don't know that much about it, but that makes total sense. Well, and, and you know, Rick, there a lot of people when they talk about twins, you may have heard this. They say, "Well, twins are actually more dangerous than single-engine airplanes." And for right. most average people, they think that can't be true. Right. And this is the reason because it's controlling the airplane after the engine fails. Uh, but with the proper training, I hope Eric agrees. I think it's safer to be in a twin. Oh, absolutely, it definitely is. I mean, the when you look at what a twin offers you, uh, it's a redundancy of everything. It's a second engine. It's a second alternator. It's a second uh, avionics bus. It's a second. Uh, it, it's it literally um, doubles the reliability of the airplane. 
Um, and then, you know, we joke about when you're doing your initial multi-engine training, you're almost never flying a multi-engine airplane. You're <laughs> flying a multi-engine airplane with one engine shut down. Um, and that's what most of the training is. Um, but then when you put that in context, the vast majority of your private pilot training is dealing with emergencies. You know, we spend about 5% of the time teaching you how to fly and 95% of the time teaching you how to survive a crash. Um, and, and I think that, that that's okay. That's normal. Um, and when you deal with multi-engine aerodynamics, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing, you don't want to be in a multi-engine airplane where one engine isn't working. Um, but that's part of training. If you're going to fly the airplane, you should know how it works. Well, sure. And, and I think that this is a great training airplane, just looking at the cockpit, you know, and we'll have links, by the way, to this, to the P2006D. Uh, the photo gallery that's on their website is awesome. Honestly, when I first looked at it, I thought it was a duchess. Uh, and then I said, wait a minute, this is different. Uh, it's a very simple, and it looks fairly well and ergonomically designed. There's two really cool features. Uh, I, I like the sleekness of this, and I love the looks of it. Uh, having a twin, especially for guys that are airline pilots, they're like, hey, I want to have two engines because they understand that redundancy and the responsibility, obviously, that comes with this because you have to do more training with a twin. But it's got two really, really cool things in my mind. Uh, besides all the visibility, it's the fact that the pilot can enter through one door and you know you've stepped up in an airplane when your passengers <laughs> don't have to go through the same door that you do to sit in their it's seat. It's a cabin-class aircraft. It's a cabin, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that is so... When I saw this, I was like, oh, man, I've got to say, I've got to get one of these. It's uh, and, and tell us a little bit about that door. I noticed it's, a, it's towards the back there. It, it looks like it's fairly large. Sure. The doors actually are really large. Um, getting in and out of this airplane, um, especially for somebody who's 6'3", like me, um, is it's a dream come true. <laughs> I don't like folding up and having to fall in an airplane. Um, and this airplane is extremely comfortable to get in and out of. Both doors are very large. The, um, the pilot access door is in the front on the left-hand side, and then the, uh, the back seat door is uh, obviously in the back and on the right-hand side. Um, Neat thing about uh, the way the doors are constructed, because the engines, or the propellers rather, rotate so close to the center line of the engine, when the, um, when the, propeller, or when the propellers are turning, uh, you only have a two-inch clearance between the propeller tip and the fuselage of the airplane. Um, so, wow. so the front do obviously you wouldn't want to open the front door because <laughs> you're going you, to, there's a propeller spinning right there beside your head. So, um, once, uh, the engine reads oil pressure, um, there, are, there's an electromagnetic locking mechanism that locks the doors. So it's a safety feature built into the airplane to prevent inadvertent door opening once the engines have been started. Um, just one of those neat things. Now, of course, once the engine shut down, it's there. It unlocks, and you can get out. If that mechanism fails, there's an emergency release, so you're not going to be stuck in the airplane and not be able to get out of it. Um, but when you look at the pictures, you may notice there's this weird-looking handle um, <laughs> on the top of the airplane, right. Uh, just right in between the propellers, and that's an emergency escape hatch on the top of the airplane. Oh wow! Um, which is huh. really, really not common at all. In, uh, in light twins or really any kind of training airplane, but um, just a really interesting feature. If you think about a water ditching, well, if you ditch this airplane because of the way it's built, the doors are probably going to be underwater. Um, so you have the, the top hatch to escape from. Um, so you actually have the two main doors and you have the one emergency escape hatch on the top of the airplane. And, and you know, one of the other benefits of that is, because uh, I used to have a, a flying airplane that had a little hatch above me as an escape hatch, is you can actually take some water and pour it over the windshield if you want to clean the windshield. Mm -hmm. I assume you do that, Eric, right? Yeah, I have students for that, but <laughs> <laughs> now this this escape hatch here—I didn't realize that was an escape hatch. I was so wondering. I thought that's where you put the string and you threw it around like a little kid, you know, to get it going in the air. That's what you—that's what you hang it from the ceiling. It's in the ceiling, right? It's right in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> well, now this this the locking mechanism you have. You also have some some landing gear in here, and you know, of course, I always get worried about landing gear and and whether it fail. If it fails, what am I going to do? Um, mm -hmm. How about emergency procedures as far as your landing gear? And how tough is it to get those that gear down? 
You know, I have seen a whole lot of gear systems. I remember when I did my checkout in the in the Beach Bonanza, um, the guy I was doing the checkout with, he said, "Okay, I won't I won't sign you off in the airplane until you can do the emergency gear extension without the autopilot on." And I said, "Okay, well that can't be too difficult." And then I started fumbling around and realized that the <laughs> the cranking mechanism is between the pilot and co-pilot seat on the back side, and it's a bicycle <laughs> chain. So really? the first three or four turns, there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden, you are hand-cranking, what, 50 pounds worth of hardware in the Airstream trying to fly the airplane at the same time. And, of course, normally, if you were in that situation, you'd set the autopilot and crank the gear down. But that was that was my final test in the checkout. I, I was getting to the point where I was about to say, look, I don't need to check out in this airplane. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I mean, my arm was about to fall off. And I've seen a lot of different gear extension systems. You know, the, the Piper Arrow has one that's really easy. You just push the knob and everything's fine. Um, I really love this gear extension system um, because in addition to being a pressure dump system, it's uh, assisted by compressed nitrogen. Ah. So when you, right between the pilot's feet, there's a little access door. You lift that up and it could not be any simpler. There's instructions there and it says, turn this, then turn that. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, so the first valve opens the system, and the second valve uh, releases the nitrogen bottle. And it, 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 there is no dumping the pressure, and the gear sort of weeps down, and hopefully it locks if you're slow enough. It's assisted by a can of compressed nitrogen. It's going down. <laughs> you are going to get the gear. It's going to be a, a nice sudden click. Um, so and, uh, what if that doesn't work, the nitrogen? Is there another procedure to use, or you're, you're out of luck? Well, I mean, in the airplane, the way that it's built, um, it, it, that's one of the cool things about it being a high-wing twin. If you had to do a gear-up landing in that airplane, it's not the end of the world. Um, you're, you're looking at replacing a couple of belly belly panels right. because both of the propellers are off the ground, so you're not going to ding an engine. And in a Rotax engine, even if, you, if, even if you have a propeller strike, all you have to do is replace the gearbox because the gearbox absorbs the load, so you don't have to do a full engine overhaul. Um, so the airplane, I don't say it's built It's built to take a beating, but in some ways it is. I mean, it's built to be extremely reliable in the sense that um, it's built well, but then if all of that stuff fails, it's designed to crash well also. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, people don't like to think about those kinds of things sometimes, but if, if, you're, in, if you're in the training business, I want to know that, you know, I forbid everything else falls apart. I want to know that a, that a forced landing event with my students and my instructors is a survivable outcome. Well, I, and, and I, I agree. Boy, it, but looking at this airplane, I mean, it's safe. You have all the gear extensions, et cetera. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about safety, and then let's move on to ergonomics. One more thing, the propeller. Uh, you know, to, you have to feather the propeller on most twins, I'm assuming, on the Rotax. You do the same thing. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, they, they get, they're full feathering propellers. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've ever flown a Rotax-powered aircraft, you know it's a lot like starting and stopping your car. Um, so, you know, shut down. There is no mixture control. If you look at any of the panel pictures, you notice there's a black handle, a set of black handles, and a set of blue handles, but there are no red handles. Um, the, the Rotax engines have dual-altitude compensating carburetors in them, so they manage your mixture for you. There is no mixture control. So, um, you know, engine shutdowns are super easy, and bringing bringing an engine back is is equally easy. Uh, but yeah, the the propellers are full feathering. Of course, like any twin, you're going to check the feathering uh, mechanism on the propeller before you take off to make sure that it functions. Um, that's part of the pre-flight checklist or the pre-takeoff checklist. So. Now that, you know, I'm pretty convinced. I mean, I think this is, is a nice airplane. Uh, oh, one more thing. Gosh, I forgot. Another important thing about a twin, a lot of people get in trouble when they're flying, flying single engine with twins with uh, fuel management. Uh, is that an issue in this airplane, and how do you manage your fuel on one engine? Sure. So like, you know, any normal twin you're going to get into, uh, the, the, the 2006 has a cross-feed system. But it's... It, again, it's designed, I don't want to say that, make it sound like pilots are ignorant, but it's designed with the pilot in mind. <laughs> it's it's designed in the it, with the thought that if you actually had a real engine failure, you're going to be operating at peak cognitive processing power. You know, you're going to be at your limit. 
Um, so rather than having you fumble around and this has to twist that way and that has to twist this way, the, the twin on the – there's an overhead panel, and on that overhead panel are just two simple fuel selectors. The, and when you take off, the left fuel selector should be pointing to the left. That means it's drawing off the left fuel tank, and the right should be pointing to the right. And, and that's how it works. So if you need to do a crossfeed, you just take the fuel selector and turn it toward the tank that you want to draw off of. I mean, it's, it's logical. It makes sense. Wow, even I could figure that out. It pro- even I can figure it out. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. As a matter of fact, it just kind of shows you you've arrived into a bigger airplane, too, because you actually turn the airplane on by reaching to the overhead, don't you? Well, I told the students, you know you're in a real airplane when there's an overhead panel. Um, <laughs> and on the overhead panel, you've got your fuel selectors, the fuel pumps, and the, uh, and the ignition switches. So it's not a, it's not your kind of overhead panel, Carl. Right. But um, <laughs> now I wish I wish all of our circuit breakers were on that overhead panel because they are sprinkled all over. If you, I don't know how many of the cockpit pictures there <laughs> there actually are in the photo gallery, but there are circuit breakers everywhere because again, you've got two avionics buses, two primary buses, two auxiliary buses. So there's circuit breakers all over the front of the airplane. Um, which is, it's an important training item. You need to know where those things are. But it would be nice if they were all just right there above your head. It's also a good, great safety feature. You know, you can isolate systems. And yeah, exactly. uh, you got something burning, you can turn it off. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, but that. Lots that, of redundancy, though. Yes, there sure is. Uh, they have some other really neat technologies, I'm assuming, the new light bulbs, that type of thing. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I everything's LED. LEDs, yeah. oh, man. Expensive, but they last a long time. That's but for they sure. They last forever, and the quality of the light. I mean, if you've ever come into the, the black hole airport with a traditional bulb landing light, and you're like, well, I hope I'm going to see the runway eventually. Um, you know, LEDs are not like that. As soon as you pitch the nose down, you can see the runway. <laughs> you know, the, the LEDs are super bright and uh, and they're high quality. They're going to cost you a lot up front, but in the long run, you're going to save tons of money and you're going to get a better landing experience in the dark. Well, Eric, if I'm walking up to this airplane, I'm looking at a picture right now of two seats that are right next to the doors near the engine. And, uh, you know, this would be something I could bring my family and friends with and they would probably feel really comfortable uh, a lot of headroom, it seems, as you move in. So let's talk a little bit about getting into the plane and, and what it feels like to actually sit in that airplane. Sure. Um, and from a comfort perspective, again, being a 6'3 guy, um, even getting in the back, because, again, the, the wing is above you um, in, the, in the rear door, but to lean over and to get in the airplane is still extremely comfortable. And it's not it, – there's no, you know, folding up and, you know, the, the Eric accordion. Um, I've, <laughs> I've had to do those before. Um, it's really easy to get in and out of, but once you're in there, I mean, I'm 6'3", and I have to slide the pilot seat up to get to the pedals. That's this kind of rare in, wow. a, in a light twin. But I've, I don't know that anybody, I mean, you'd have to be seven feet tall to be able to sit with the pilot seat in the full aft position because there's just tons of room up there. And um, when you look, it's, it's probably difficult to tell when you look at uh, the panel picture, but the shape of the yoke in the airplane, you wouldn't even probably even think about it. But the way it's designed, the yoke is spread out, but it's a lot farther forward. It doesn't come out at you as far as you as it looks like it does. And so when you're sitting in the pilot seat, it's uh, it's almost like not having a yoke there. It's so far back into the panel, you you just it, it nothing's violating your personal space. And yes, there's plenty of headroom. And if you're sitting in the back, I got in the back seat the other day just to test it out for myself. And with the pilot seat in a normal position where you'd be flying the airplane, I was able to cross my right leg over my left leg and sit comfortably in the back of the airplane. Um, And I'm 6'3". I mean, there's there's a ton of room in there. So this could be used as a corporate aircraft fairly easily. You know, I think that's sort of part of its – the other part of its mission because the cost to operate the thing is just so low. I mean, it it can be so cheap to operate the airplane. And, um, you know, having the – the passenger access door in the back. I think that's sort of, you know, it's a bridge airplane between that light twin to the cabin class. It's sort of that in-between. And actually, when you read Technop's description of the airplane on its website, they call it the twin in a class of its own. And I think it really is. There's, It doesn't really have a competitor because all the light, you have the light twins and then you have the, the cabin class twins. And this is some, some kind of hybrid between the two. 
Well, I tell you, and it, it really does look sharp. You know, going back to the yoke, for those of us that feel if they're in a real airplane, they have to have a yoke. It looks like a real kind of tough-looking yoke. You're like, hey, I'm really <laughs> flying an airplane here. <laughs> and it's got, uh, I don't know what you call that type of rubber material, but um, it just, it, it feels like you're flying an airplane. Um, it's uh, it's that neoprene, it's neoprene rubber. Um, it's the this, this stuff they put on the back of, you know, high-end, like iPhone cases. Right. Um, it's just, it's got that good feel to it. I know that seems kind of silly, but um, but you know when you're flying in the airplane, in addition to the airplane flying well and landing well and maneuvering well, I want it to kind of feel good too. Um, oh, sure. And uh, and so it, it it is a it's a pilot's airplane for sure. How about uh, for the pilot that's that wants to maneuver around? I'm assuming they have different ways to move the aircraft seat, not just forward and backwards. A lot of these seats are just so uncomfortable. Uh, they yeah, have. and that's another thing. Now, this seat, um, in terms of comfort, just to sit in it, um, it it's. I mean, I'm not going to say it's. You know, it's the. You want to take it and put it in your living room and watch television, but it's for an airplane seat. It's really comfortable. Right. Well, Eric, you know, I'm I'm sold on this. The only thing we haven't talked about is flying it. I mean, we. Yeah. You know, let let's get in the plane now and let's go take it for a ride. Uh, from from starting to taxiing to takeoff. Um, compare this to some other airplanes you fly, and also tell us a little bit about that, about the procedures to to get those engines started. Because a lot of times, you know, you have a, a tough time cranking certain engines. I mean, do we have any way of cooling the airplane down? Those type of things. Sure. So, um, air conditioning is an option on this airplane. Um, so, which you think, why in the world would you want air conditioning in a light twin? Well, <laughs> if you've ever flown in Central Florida. Well, really, anywhere that it's hot, you know why you want air conditioning. Um, and, uh, I mean, the airplane will get hot on the ground. There's no doubt about that. It's very well ventilated, though. When, as soon as you get moving, there's great airflow in it. Um, not to the point where it's blowing your face away, but um, well ventilated once you move the airplane. Um, you know, the air conditioning option would have been nice, honestly. I, I would love to have it, but it increases maintenance costs substantially and, you um, and, it, you know, for, for the training environment, it's just it's one of those things that's going to consistently fail just for the number of operations the aircraft goes on every day. So, um, you know, I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, but I'm sure it would be nice to have the air conditioning. Um, let's see. In terms of just starting the airplane, Rotex engines are, are a pilot's dream in terms of starting and operating. So if the airplane's cold... Um, you use the choke to start the engine, and it's one turn, and it fires off. If it's been run once, you don't use the choke, and it just starts. It's like your car. You get in, you turn the key, and the twin, there's just a push starter, but it's the same basic principle. It, it just starts, <laughs> and then it just runs until you tell it to stop. Um, so um, from the perspective of you know operating the engines, it's definitely, you don't deal with, um, you don't deal with some of the issues you deal with a lot with the newer training twins, with the fuel-injected engines, um, dealing with vapor lock and hot starts and things like that, the, the Rotax just doesn't have that problem. And even when you get into this, uh, the particular plane we operate still has the Rotax 912, the carbureted engine. But even when you get the, the 914, the fuel-injected uh, Rotax engine, it, because it still has its own engine uh, uh, computer within it, or not computer, but its own engine fuel monitoring system, it, you don't deal with the same issues with fuel-injected engines and Rotaxes that you deal with in the Lycomics and the Continentals. So um, that's nice. I mean, it's nice. It's an easy airplane to operate. And in a training environment, you know, I do want an airplane that's true to form, but I also want one where, you know, I'm not sitting on the ground spending 30 minutes trying to crank the airplane. Um, so that, that's nice. So, again, you have the 912S, is that right? Yeah, this is the 912S, the certified engine. Gotcha, gotcha. And and so now now that we've got this thing started and we're taxiing around and we haven't had to, you know, do all sorts of tricks to get it going, uh, just so people haven't flown a Rotax, I, I've only flown one once. What do you do? I mean, is there a run-up procedure? What, what do we do when we get out to the end of the runway? Oh, sure. I mean, really, when you get to the end of the runway, it's like any other twin um, that you operate. You're going to run the engines up. You're going to check... Um, the, the Rotax doesn't have magnetos, but it does have, it has a dual... Um, uh, electronic ignition um so you're going to check you know both both ports or you know you can talk about checking the mags if you want to use the same term it's not magnetos but um but you you can you will check to see that you're getting the appropriate rpm drop 
Um, and then you're going to run through, you know, you're going to exercise the propeller, check the feathering mechanism. You'll do that on both engines. Um, look for engine temperatures. Um, you know, the Rotax does have liquid-cooled cylinder heads, so cylinder head temperature actually does matter. You have air-cooled cylinder, uh, the cylinder bodies, and then you have liquid-cooled cylinder heads. So you're looking at uh, multiple engine temperatures and pressures and things like that. But again, it's not necessarily any different than your procedural uh, approach to flying any light twin. Well, it, it looks. I mean. Now that you've you've kind of convinced me, I want to buy one. But just tell us how it handles. <laughs> Please do, Carl. <laughs> no, no, Please I'm not. Do. Believe me, my wife would have my head. But uh, I think I think a tail number that ends in Echo Charlie would be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's uh, it's either that or a house, you know, that type of thing. But I really I I've actually fell in love with this thing about three years ago when I saw the design work on it, and uh, a couple years ago when I got to actually touch it. I've actually have not flown it yet, but Eric's going to remedy that situation for me. I am dying to get in this that. thing. We're going to oh, fix that. man. What a beautiful I'll tell you plane. what, Carl. Maybe I'll tomorrow. trade with you. I'll trade with you. You can fly my airplane when I fly your airplane. Oh, you mean the 182? <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I can fly a 182 anytime, Carl. <laughs> but, you know, that, it's a deal. I'll get you into the simulator. How's that sound? Um, that sounds cool. <laughs> we can do that. But, you know, Eric, the, this has been great. I mean, I'm really excited about it. The The handling characteristics of this are just like any twin, or they, they're light, a little lighter on the controls. Um, how, no, how would you compare it? It's definitely lighter on the controls. I tell people it's like flying a Ferrari. Um, mm. it, it is extremely responsive. I mean, I did my initial multi-training in a Piper Seminole. Absolutely love it. Rock-solid, reliable airplane. I've got a lot of hours in the Duchess also. I haven't gotten to flown, fly the Twin Star yet, but I would love to because I love Diamond's products. Um, but in terms of just the the controllability from a light twin perspective, I mean, it's very, very agile. Um, I mean, it uh, it's a performer for sure. And, and you know, one thing about Technum, I I know just a little bit about them. I haven't flown them much. They look like a wonderful aircraft. Uh, you know, we were my partners on the other airplane were even talking about purchasing a Technum, and my friends that fly them swear by them. You've got the Italian design. They look sharp. Uh, they they fly well. They think about every little thing, every detail in their design, both in the looks and also in the safety aspects of it. Uh, I'm very impressed with it. What I want to know at some point, and you probably, I don't know if you can answer this question, is how about dispatch reliability? How reliable is this aircraft? Or is this going to be sitting in, is this going to be a hangar queen? You know, that's that's a really good question. And quite frankly, I mean, we ju- we haven't operated it enough. I mean, we just got the thing uh, three weeks ago. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we're still finishing up instructor standardization in the airplane. So, um, you know, it's, it's an unknown commodity for us as an operation, but these things are flying all over Italy. Um, there are several um, of your career academies out in the Midwest that are flying them. There are a lot of them in Utah, um, and uh, and they're just rugged performers. They just go all the time. Um, you know, I, having I, I don't know. I, I definitely don't have as much time in the Rotax as I do in your your traditional GA engines, but. Um, I've never had an issue with a Rotax engine. People talk, people say bad things about them just because they don't know anything about them, and they look at uh, you know the high, the high RPM, uh, you know, fifty-eight hundred RPM. That's just unnatural. Um, well, sure, it's, it's outside of your normal, your exposure, sure, but um, but you know the Rotax engine is extremely reliable in my experience. I know a lot of people who you know really love them. Um, from a maintenance perspective, again, if you're not if you don't have a metric set of tools and you're not used to working on really tiny block engines, um, you know, yeah, you might fuss about it. But for the people who know the engine, uh, it's it's super easy to work on. It was to, it was built to be to be maintained and to be operated over and over again. And um, I mean, look at you know, for me, when I'm looking at one product, I like to see how far up it goes. And when you talk about Rotax, what you're actually talking about is Bombardier. Bombardier owns Rotax. Uh, Bombardier builds a lot of really good products, and you can't argue with that. <laughs> so, I mean, as a company, they have a they have a reliability reputation. And I mean, the, the Rotax engines started off with very low TBO times. You know, TBO time on a on a Continental Lycoming in the 2000s, the Rotax engines started much lower. They're up to 2,000 now, and you can operate them way way above that 
you really wanted to, but recommended TBO um, is 2,000 hours. I think as people are operating those engines more and more, they're starting to realize that it's it's a rock-solid engine, and um, and especially if you're running car gas in it, you, you can't afford to run any other engine other than that these days. No, gosh. Think about this. I mean, two engines running at about eight gallons per hour is almost half of what a large, like a 210 or a, a 182 would burn in an hour with one engine. That's sure. pretty significant change. But, uh, you know, Eric, I really appreciate you sharing this with us. I, I know we're going to have to wrap up here soon, but this has been so awesome. Uh, I see a video, a video podcast edition uh, of Stuck Mike Avcast coming in, in the near future. Well, I think we need to do a, a, a first impression video, uh, just like I did of the Cirrus. I think we need to do that of the, the 2006. So I, I think we're on for that, aren't we? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm officially signed up. Cool. We'll definitely, we'll definitely do that, and look forward to that. Uh, it's uh, if I, I really am a huge fan. Uh, not because you know my family's from Italy, but uh, I, I'm a huge fan of of a lot of the Italian-made aircraft. Uh, they've always, uh, just like a lot of the Czech aircraft, have have put a lot of detail into the design, uh, both from a functionality standpoint and also from the standpoint of of it looks good you know it, it's very aesthetically pleasing i just absolutely love the aircraft um well you know eric thanks so much for for sharing all that with us i know you were so pumped up about this and i know we could talk for hours and hours and unfortunately we're kind of coming to the end of the show here uh, but if anybody has any questions about the aircraft about Tectum, you know eric has he's got a bunch of knowledge and he knows people that have a lot of knowledge on the Tectum. so uh, I would I would really encourage you to to contact Eric or contact us at the Stuck Mike Avcast, uh, and we can send that message along to Eric and uh, and Eric. They can can they send a message to you directly? Would that be all right? Of course, absolutely. And cool. and it's really you know now that Technum has really seen um, the the need and the market for their aircraft in the United States. They just set up a, a brand new U.S. distribution center in Sebring, Florida, um, and that's where they're going to be assembling their airplanes. They're going to be doing factory maintenance there. So Technum's an Italian company, but they they now have a very strong, established um, U.S. presence as well. And I don't think you're going to see them go anywhere. And um, and my experience in dealing with them from a training perspective has been they are very happy to share information about the aircraft and um, help you understand how to operate them. Well, Eric, those people that are, that are there uh, that work in that facility are wonderful folks. Uh, and uh, they have, they really are passionate about aviation and not just about trying to sell aircraft. And they do believe in the Technium product. That's one thing I like about those folks in Sebring. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, can we mention the name of the company or no? Uh, um, absolutely. Yeah, sure. It's uh, the Hova Aviation. And uh, they, they're just, they actually were from Virginia. The heart of Virginia is actually how Hova came about. And now they're really expanding into Florida. And uh, you'll see them. They were at Sun and Fun. They might be, I assume, at Air Venture. Uh, but just some really sweet people. Our picks of the week. You know, now it's time to move on to our uh, picks of the week here. And uh, if you have questions about the technical, again, send us some questions. Uh, Rick and, uh, <laughs> you know, Sean, we haven't heard a lot from you right now, except, you know, it's, uh, I, I know I sat here in amazement at listening to all of what he had to say, but uh, but Rick, you had a really cool pick of the week. What What, what is that again? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I'll go ahead and say that you turned me on to an interesting pick of the week, Carl, um, so that I don't uh, completely act like I found this one myself. But it is very cool on a number of levels, and one of them is just basically because I'm lately uh, career-wise involved in web design, and it's a really elegantly designed, very modern designed website. It's uh, aviationstatistics.org, but that's not the cool part about it. Um, it, 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 It is a very nice, neat package aggregating... Uh, information about uh, general aviation accidents, um, and I think it's quite a range of data. I, I, I know it it only goes up to tw- to 2011, but I'm now trying to reload it to tell you what the start date is. Um, and there's you know it, there's there's a number of ways to look at it. The basic way, the the, the most interesting thing here is um, there is an interactive map that by year you can and, and or by state location based. It'll show you where accidents have occurred, and uh, and I think these accidents <clears throat> were um, are accidents operating under uh, FAR Part 91 that occurred within the United States and had at least one fatality. So that's the that's the spec limit on it. And um, but you can look at any year 
you can look at a lot of years, in which case the map fills up with an awful lot of marks, sadly. Um, and um, then there in, there's summary information about you know accidents. The goal of the site is to um, you know help people learn from from accidents, from what has happened you know to others. And uh, in fact, the opening quote on the website is great: "Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it." And there's another amazing quote here uh, from. Is one from Frank Borman, the Wilbur Wright quote, which people have probably heard. I love it. In flying, I have learned that carelessness and overconfidence are usually far more dangerous than deliberately accepted risks. Um, anyway, there's a lot of stuff here, and you can sort by all sorts of things. The average distance away from uh, depart departure from an airport when an accident occurs. All this data is sort of aggregated in a number of ways with a number of different summaries. And um, it's really cool and quite useful. And uh, something, boy, if you just got some time and you want to browse information about aviation and learn, um, I would say go to aviationstatistics.org. So thanks for the tip, Carl. <laughs> You're welcome. And, you know, I, I love stuff like this just because I'm a, a math geek and that it's, a, it's a cool little website. So we'll put it out, that out there on the website, a link to that. And, Sean, how about you? You have a uh, pick of the week here also. I do, and you know, I worked really hard. Uh, coming. No, actually, uh, I admit I poached this one from Carl as well, but it's really, really, really cool. It's so, called... so, the, so there's a school, and we're in class, and Carl's in the middle seat, and then Sean and I are on the other side. We're, like, Look, we're, we're picking over his shoulder. Well, at least you guys didn't have the same pick. That would have been really yeah. bad. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> we would have edited that out, and no one would have been the wiser. <laughs> Um, it's called the uh, Antarctica flights and this is really cool. I definitely want to try this sometime. These are uh, flights that depart from Australia and do aerial tours over the Antarctic continent. Um, according to the website here, they, uh, they operate in conjunction with Qantas Airlines and they, uh, they depart from Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth. And you fly south down to Antarctica. It's about a 12 and a half hour trip. And uh, according to the website here, they have expeditioners who have been to the Antarctic who talk about what is happening below you. And obviously you can look out the window and watch uh, all the ice just unfold beneath the airplane as you go. Um, and it looks like they do it uh, – I'm looking at the website. As we're recording this, uh, this is June 26th. It says the next flight is in 187 days. So uh, I guess they do you know a couple of flights a year or so. Um, but it's really, really cool. It's it's a idea that I've never even thought about flying an airliner somewhere to give a bunch of people a aerial view of the whole continent. Um, but if you're interested in checking it out, the URL is AntarcticaFlights.com.au, and they've got just some gorgeous pictures of uh, of the Antarctic continent from up at altitude. Uh, so yeah, definitely check that out. And the great thing is, it's done from an airplane. Uh, it's not, you know, you actually, it, it, and the reason I, I think that was brought up too, and the, and the reason I really like the website is the fact that, you know, we may not ever get to fly over there uh, ourselves, but this is some way we could do this. I mean, for you to do it personally would cost you a whole bunch of money. And uh, it is a cold continent. My uh, my wife actually did three tours of duty down in Antarctica, oh. and uh, just a really neat place. And she actually flew in there multiple times, uh, but uh, usually with the military that they go in there. And just, just to give you an idea, it's so hard to get people out of there. It could take months just to get someone who's stranded on the on Antarctica to get out. Uh, we actually saw that in the news recently. So just be it'd be awesome to go see that. I'm so uh, uh, just a secret between you, me, and everybody else listening. Uh, I'm probably going to do this. Uh, for my wife for uh, our anniversary either the next year or year after so it's going to be pretty wow. cool so don't Very don't cool. everybody don't tell her everybody listening please <laughs> keep it keep it a secret <laughs> I tell you what Carl I'll make you a deal you take me along and I don't tell her <laughs> well that, that <laughs> along with everybody else listening is, <laughs> I, I'm going to be I'm going to be spending I'm going to mortgage the house she likes me better than she likes you anyway. I, I know I know it's true <laughs> but that's because you're six foot three and I'm just a short guy uh, <laughs> but anyway thanks I think it's the Italian thing. It, it is. It is. Well, you're driving the Italian airplane, and I'm driving. There you go. And I drive a Prius. You know? There you go. 
so I can't compete with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, my pick of the week before I, I, I let uh, you know Eric move on to to his is uh, one of a, of an organization that I truly truly believe in, and uh, a couple of people that run it there, uh, Mike McKenzie and uh, and another gentleman uh, who's actually their flight director there, Tom Duffy. Uh, they have an organization called Vision of Flight, visionofflight.org. They're actually based out of Orlando. And what they're trying to do is to, to create the next generation of passionate uh, aviators and people interested in aviation, not just flying, but everything. Uh, you know, just like, you know, like I talk about in Aviation Careers podcast, it's not just about flying. And what they're trying to promote is education. They're trying to promote those people that have an interest but n- can't think that they can get into it, don't think they can do it. Uh, and through Vision of Flight, they, they actually are able to sponsor events that allow people to actually live their dream and, and pursue a career in aviation, whether it's an air traffic controller, an engineer, a flight attendant, or a pilot. They give them that opportunity. And a lot of these people that people signed up with this organization in Orlando could never do that. The other really cool thing about this is uh, uh, Mike McKenzie, his call sign is Suge, he... Um, Actually, uh, was a the person that was key in bringing the Red Tails Monument to the Orlando Science Center. They have a Red Tails Pilot Monument, and uh, it's really cool. When they had they had a bunch of Red Tail, the Tuskegee Airmen, that were there for the dedication of this monument. Uh, so if you get a chance, go to visionofflight.org and check that out. Check out this monument that was was built for these folks, and it's it's a really cool. A monument of like four airplanes in formation, growing out of this tree tree type of monuments. Really, really cool stuff. And the the people that are actually running that organization are are true, really true, truly people that are concerned about the future of aviation, but also the future of of our children and helping them move forward. So, Vision of Flight, I recommend it. I I would uh, also recommend sponsoring it and telling everybody about it. So, some really terrific people. Well, Eric, awesome. you, it's it's a. I mean, they're they're like the happiest people I know. I mean, they they get to take people out to airports and check out airplanes and take them flying, uh, and and they're make they're really moving people forward. Uh, Eric, that sounds like a dream job. Yes, yes, it is. Well, Eric, you're the you're the last but not least. We're gonna hear from you as far as uh, your pick of the week. What what do you have for us? Sure, I'll keep this one quick because I know we've talked about it in the past. But um, you know, I've just been really impressed with um, the the new direction of AOPA as an organization um, and their willingness to get out into the communities where aviation is. Um, I personally loved the AOPA Summit event that they did every year. I thought it was really cool. But I really, really like much better these new regional fly-ins that they have. It's really going back to the roots where people come out, they fly into the local airport, everybody gets around. I love hanging out with pilots. I just do. I love telling stories. and, you know, learning, really, there's, there's a ton of learning that goes on at events like this. It's not all just uh, sitting around and, and talking about fish and, and deer. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the next event um, on AOP's radar is in, is in Plymouth, Massachusetts on July 12th. Um, and there's basically one a month, um, you know, all the way up through uh, the, the big homecoming event up in Frederick. And it's actually a sad Victoria couldn't make it because I was going to see if I could crash at her house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll t- tell her you said. I said it's okay. Okay. <laughs> Carl, Rick, and Sean all That's unanimously true. agreed that I should but, stay. But um, when you arrive, just when you arrive, she's going to ask you to move a chair. <laughs> Okay. Just right. inside that's, joke. That's a joke. You can tell. You can tell. Said. Okay. You I, may be I, sharing I, room with Turbo. And Turbo, the dog. Yeah. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna take Millie, the pilot pooch. Also, she. They can <laughs> hang out together. They can hang out together. But anyway, I just. I love this where you just go out to the airport. You. You have breakfast, and um, you know, I got. I got. I think every morning at uh, at Sun and Fun this year, I, I went over. I went by the AOPA tent as I was doing my morning rounds around Sun and Fun. And Mark Baker's there, and we every every morning we talked about something different. I just the approachability of the organization and their willingness to go out in the communities and find pilots and get people jazzed up about aviation again. I think is really cool. Um, and so you know, if you if you live in any of these areas where you know these events are going to be, or you can get to one, um, you really should do it. I think. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I loved the AOPA presence at Summit Fun. It was a lot of fun, and it was really educational also. So that's that's my pick of the week, AOPA Regional Fly-Ins. 
the After Landing Checklist. Well, thanks, Eric, and, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we, uh, If you need, want to find the links to these, by the way, just go to Stuck Mike Avcast, go to slash 75. It's episode 75. We'll have all the, the links to these at the bottom of the episode. Also, if you could, uh, if you appreciate the content, I'd appreciate you going out to Stuck Mike Avcast, look in the right column there, and click on some of our sponsors and visit them, especially the people that are bringing this episode to you today, and that's Aviation Universe. AviationUniverse.us is uh, one of the best pilot shops out there in, in, the, in the United States because you know what? They'll come out and pick you up at the airport up in Chicago and take you to their shop. Uh, they have some really innovative things they're doing and some wonderful products. Well, from myself, Carl Valeri, also from Victoria Zyko in Absentia, along with Turbo the Flying Dog, <laughs> and uh, Eric Crump, and Sean Moody, Rick Felty. We'll talk to you next, next episode, and uh, hope you've enjoyed this, and safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.